Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Terms show, we have Sasha Chuchuz on. He is the CEO of Graybrook, and Graybrook is a great... We have actually worked and known these, worked with these guys and known these guys for, I guess it's years now. I don't know if it's quite... It's probably not quite a decade, but it feels like a really long time. And these guys always step up. They are people of their word. Every time we've had a question about their business model, the type of investments they do, they always have straight answers. We just really think the world of these guys. And now we brought on Sasha to talk about the Toronto condo market because a lot of people are seeing headlines about what's going on in Toronto and the Toronto condo market. So we thought who better to bring on than the CEO of a, CEO of Greybrook. These guys deal exclusive, not exclusively, I shouldn't say that. They do a lot of stuff with Toronto, some of the biggest Toronto condo developers, but they also do more than that. They, they uh, work with developers who are building different subdivisions and different projects all around the GTA. You're going to actually, we, we start off talking about Hamilton actually. Um, so they do a lot more than Toronto condos, but they do have a ton of experience and a depth of knowledge that is pretty much unmatched in the Toronto condo market because of their experience in how they work with developers and do all the funding around different development projects. They get insight because they see the project when it's in the development stage. So when they're planning, going for permits, then when they put up the sales office, then when they put the shovel in the ground and dig the first little bit of that project, they've been in that project for years by the time that shovel goes in the ground. So they really have some good perspective. So we wanted Sasha's insight on the Toronto condo market, which is what he gives us in the first part of this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show. And in the second half of this episode, we dive into what they're doing in Florida. Wait to hear some of the trends and some of the projects and some of the things that they're seeing in the Florida market. I was actually surprised and uh, I'm not shocked. I don't want to say shocked, but surprised at what they're doing and what, what they're pulling off in the Florida market. So that's the second half of the podcast. So it's kind of split into two parts. And if you are listening to this and you want some real estate information here in the local GTA area, Golden Horseshoe, and you want to take advantage of some of the best areas to invest we think of in North America, maybe maybe the world right now, Nah, that's maybe too aggressive. I'll, I'll pull that back. Definitely in North America. In North America, we feel blessed to be able to be be investing right here in the Golden Horseshoe for many reasons: our banking system, our population growth, the healthcare system we have here, the education system that we have here, the attractiveness that this area is to the rest of the world is really really high. So to be able to invest as a real estate investor with these fundamentals behind you is really great. And if you are looking to get into real estate as part of your portfolio and you're investing and you want some information, you can check out some of the information that we have, different videos, free copies of books, reports that we put out. We do a class about once a month right now. If you're looking to see how we help real estate investors, you can attend that free 90-minute real estate investing class where we share some of the latest properties and cash flow numbers. You can get access to all of that information at www.rockstarinnercircle.com. That's www.rockstarinnercircle.com. Free downloads of our books, different reports. You can sign up for the next class that we're hosting where we share some of the real life information that we're getting from the streets in real time. That's a 90 minute class, all available available to you there. And that's again at www.rockstarinnercircle.com. With that, let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are live with Sasha. I feel like I always am going to mess up your last name. I don't know why. I have a difficult last name. Cuckoos. 
That is a valid attempt, sir. But it's pronounced. <laughs> what is the problem? Say it one more time. Pronounced choo choos like a train. Choo choos, choo choos. Oh, Sasha choo choos. You know the Euros have that little. Uh, yeah, the little hat. Seat. Yeah, got it. So Sasha Chuchus, the CEO of Greybrook, I really appreciate you doing this because I think a lot of people are have Toronto condos are top of mind. And I want to pick your brain on Toronto, Toronto as a city, Toronto, the condo market, uh, the U.S., some trends that you're seeing in U.S. housing and what's going on in the U.S. that I think we can. So I have a lot to go through. So I'm just going to just awesome. jump into it with you. But before we just jump into it, you said that you did you grow up in Hamilton? I did. I, I, I lived in Hamilton up until I went to university. Uh, and then uh, my family, my entire family still lives there. And I come from a really big family. We had, my dad had eight uh, brothers and sisters. So all of my cousins, aunts, uncles, all still live in, in Hamilton. And so when you see Hamilton, like Hamilton, I feel is starting to really go through its moment. Like it's been yeah. going through a moment for the last 10 years for everyone who's been paying attention. But yep. now Hamilton, more and more people from Toronto, I look at Toronto almost just like, I. this is going to sound weird and might be even insulting to somebody from Hamilton, but I almost look at Toronto just as this, like this metropolitan area that includes and engulfs Hamilton and and even all the way around kind of to St. And I know it's obviously I'm really stretching when I say St. Catharines, but yeah. Toronto is just this big metropolitan area that seems sure. to have swallowed up this stuff. And the benefit to Hamilton is like Hamilton's, I don't know, it's getting development, which I like personally, no I like to see. We, we bought a big development in Hamilton called Pier 8, uh, which is on the waterfront. It's a big redevelopment. I think it consists of about 30 acres of waterfront redevelopment so it's uh we bought it from the city and the port authority and uh that's going to start getting underway you know imminently and 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 we've been kind of looking at the hamilton area for for a long time for a lot of the same reasons right so when you look at you know kind of what you just said in terms of how you look at toronto and and its expansion when you hear about the narrative of immigration um you know pre-covid and we'll talk about what it looks like during covid and after covid but in, in in kind of the when you think about immigration Toronto gets a disproportionate amount. And I think when people say statistically Toronto gets a disproportionate amount, I think they're referring to kind of the GTA. And then obviously that's now extended to the greater Golden Horseshoe because as transportation uh, infrastructure has continued to improve, you've had a lot more access to the cities. Now, having said that, I, I believe personally that Hamilton is this quasi sort of city that not only is a, if I want to call it an extension of Toronto, but also very much has its own identity and its own personality. And what you're starting to see is all of these little things that used to be thought of as very much just an extension of the big city, so to speak, are developing their own little hubs, their own little, you know, micro economies, if you will. And I think it's really great for the province in general. Totally. And you know, the weird part is, and I'm going to get back to Toronto in a second, but the weird part is Hamilton is growing so fast. We're, we're seeing a spillover effect where like, people from Hamilton are now buying in Brentford. Yeah. You know, because yeah. a lot of people, yeah. So you're seeing, and even in like London, Ontario, we're seeing a spillover where people from London, because you know, that population's growing are buying in St. Thomas in St. Catharines. We see people buying in Welland. So, you know, in Oshawa, we see people go buying in Peterborough. Is it like Barry or really like you see all these yep. spillover and this is just another it's why I feel this area still has so much potential from an investment point of view, even with all the stuff going on with COVID. If Agreed. you can be smart with your analysis, 
there's so much here, whether it's the, 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 the Toronto proper market or all the areas, but let's, so let's switch over to then. Um, cause I'm sure it's top of mind. So, so to get someone to like, um, a, you know, with your background and what you do to share what you're seeing in Toronto is going to be fascinating to me. What do you see in the Toronto market right now? Because a lot of the headlines that we're, we're all seeing are, the Toronto uh, softness in condo prices, a lot of vacancies in in condos, that kind of thing. And to sure. be fair, we see some of we do see at Rockstar some of that, but we're not active enough in the Toronto proper market to know. You know, we know the outskirts really well, like the back of our hand. But yep. that Toronto proper condo market, I think you could give us some insight. What what are you seeing on the streets yeah, right now? So if I if if you know I'll, I'll zero in on condo, but I can kind of break down Toronto as follows, right? You have the city and then you have the periphery and the periphery would be kind of the greater Toronto area, right? So things in and around. It's really a tale of two cities every time because condo is your predominant, you know, affordable housing option as it relates to kind of, you know, the general population, things that are under a million bucks or kind of a million to a million five. Ground related housing in the city of Toronto, very hard to find at that price point. So people access housing typically through the condo market. In the periphery, you have more of a low rise or what we call a ground related sort of uh, inventory that's available to you. So think about what's kind of happened uh, with the pandemic and the pandemic's changed a lot of things. But I, I think the, peop- the, the, the question people have to ask themselves is, has it changed them permanently or temporarily? And as an investor, it's very important to ask yourself that question. Anytime there's some sort of exogenous factor, whether it, you're investing in stocks, whether you're investing in real estate, you have to think about markets over the long term and you have to think about the fundamentals and what drives them so why i bring that up is if you think about everything that brought the toronto condo market to its level prior to the pandemic the strong fundamentals we talk about right we touched a little bit on immigration but large growth both from immigration and migration from other parts of the country uh very diversified employment base uh, all of the things that, you know, proximity, transit accessibility, you know, the, the live, work, play uh, city that Toronto has become, right? It used to be that you worked in Toronto and you lived in the suburbs. Now the city offers people entertainment. It offers people uh, social engagement. It offers people a place to live and a place to work. So for all of those reasons, what made Toronto a world-class city prior to the pandemic, I believe, will continue after this pandemic has taken whatever shape it takes in the future, whether that's a eradication of of COVID as a a serious threat, or whether that's a management of of either the disease and or our way of life around the disease. At some point in time, you know, this this, uh, city will return to a normal or some version of normal uh, uh, lifestyle. So all of that to say that everything you're reading today is, is, kind of more or less accurate, right? Like you're seeing prices level off, not drop, right? But level off. And really they're not dropping because the volume of sales is not high, right? There's been a drop off in the level of transactions. So there's almost not a tangible market to be able to point to and say that, wow, prices have really fallen off because prices are relatively stable, but transaction volumes have fallen. On the other hand, listings have increased right? But the number of buyers isn't there necessarily because nobody's looking to buy at the moment. And there's a standoff happening, right? Where people have listed because they're nervous or whatever their drivers are. Again, people are, and I say this in a, in a respectful way, people are people. Like they're not experts in the stock market, not all of them. They're not experts in the real estate market. So they tend to be 
susceptible to media influence. They tend to be susceptible to headline risk, as we call it. And they sometimes can't see through the clutter. So of course they get nervous when they see and hear this narrative of people moving out of the city and going to the suburbs and nobody's going to want to go back to offices again. So what you're seeing in the market today is, is, is a manifestation of that narrative where it is no doubt accurate that rents have fallen off. But think about that logically for a second. You have a city that's largely shut down, right? When it comes to the core, the offices are completely off. In fact, the government has asked the big employers, the big banks, the big law firms not to bring people back specifically because in a downtown core where you don't have the luxury of walking into your office and sitting down on the ground floor or on the second floor and you have, you know, 50 story office towers, elevators are an issue, you know, proximity becomes a real problem. So as a result of that, the downtown core is virtually empty. There's no sports, there's no entertainment, there's no indoor dining. So of course, if you're a young person who's renting in the city of Toronto, which is the most typical demographic of renter, right? It's that kind of sub 35, you know, professional, you have no reason to be in the city. So why am I going to spend money or this much money to live in a, in a very expensive city and pay those rents if I have no real motivation to be there? If anything, temporarily, I'm going to go move back home with my parents or I'm going to go save some money and, and live somewhere that's a lot less expensive until I have to return to the city. So naturally, you're going to see this decrease in demand for rents. And then what happens in a city like Toronto, where the condo market is the main source of rental stock, right? Uh, it's investors who buy units, they rent them out. What starts to happen is, you know, Tom, if you had a, a condo unit and your mortgage payment's 2,500 bucks a month and you lose a tenant, and then it takes you what used to take a day to get a tenant, all of a sudden it takes you a month to get a tenant. Now you're going to say, great, I'll take 2,300. I'll take 2,100. I'll take whatever amount of money greater than zero because candidly, that's, that's, you know, for me, the personal, I'm not an institution that owns apartment buildings and, and is looking at my business model over a decade. I'm just looking to make my mortgage payments. So at the end of the day, you're going to see this relative volatility in rents for a period of time until it begins to stabilize. And what that does to the condo market in, as a whole is all of a sudden there's people who get nervous about that. They start thinking, well, you know, maybe I can't cover my mortgage payment for the next six months or the next 12 months. And then you start seeing people that want to list and now there's deals to be had, right? So now people are starting to look and say, Hey, I might be able to buy this for a hundred thousand dollars less than I could a year ago. When that starts to happen, the market kind of catches its footing. And all of this for somebody like me in my business is, you know, you have to look at things beyond the six months in front of us, or maybe even then beyond the next 12 or 18 months in front of us. You have to look at things as a real estate owner over the long term. And as I said, kind of at the, at the onset, I, I truly believe that there is a, you know, a demand that will return to the city that will restore those same fundamentals that we were living through before this pandemic in the sense that supply is very hard to come by. We have tremendous demand coming from all these different sources, migration, immigration, and other. Uh, and I think that that's going to continue. So I think what we're seeing today in the condo market, what you're reading today is very much true for the immediate term, where I think the narrative has kind of gone off the rails is where people are making, I think, pretty definitive conclusions about how people will live a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, and saying that the softness in demand that we're seeing now temporarily 
is as a result of people just saying, screw it. I'm not living in a city anymore. I'm going to go live in Guelph. Uh, now, of course, there are some people who are choosing to do that because they've been told they can work from home forever or for some material amount of time. Uh, and they're choosing to do that. But I'd say that the vast majority of what's driving uh, this is people making a temporary move out of the city. And I think the spike we're seeing, if you're reading about the Toronto low-rise market or the GTA low-rise market, you're hearing a lot about a surge in sales on the low-rise side. And I think people are automatically equating this to people who are moving from the city, right? Because you're seeing the city kind of soften and you're seeing the low-rise market strengthen and people are drawing the logical conclusion that they're moving from A to B. I'm here to tell you that I believe there's some component of that, but I also believe that what's happening in the peripheral as it relates to low-rise housing is really just a, a function of the fact that from 2018, when the fair housing plan was introduced and when B20, that sort of mortgage regulation around qualifying for mortgages, that 200 basis point buffer, when those uh, policy measures were introduced, they put a significant damper on the low-rise market, right? They took a lot of people out of the low-rise market who are otherwise buyers in that market because they couldn't access it from uh, an affordability perspective. What happened then is through COVID, interest rates precipitously dropped. And now even with B20, you're virtually in the same spot you were in 2017 from a, from a buying power perspective. And maybe you've even saved some money over the past six months where you haven't gone on that vacation, you haven't gone out to dinner, you know, twice a week. So now people have a little bit more to put down. They're able to access cheap uh, mortgage rates. And as a result of that, the people who are on the sidelines that were otherwise buyers in that market and couldn't from 2018 to kind of the beginning of 2020, all of a sudden can now participate. So the big surge you're seeing in these peripheral markets is not just a function of people moving from inside of cities to suburbs. That's what the narrative reads. But I can tell you that the vast majority of the people who are buying in these suburban areas were always buyers in suburban areas and they were always living in suburban areas. They simply weren't able to access the market at the same velocity and now they can't. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you're bringing up. And, and I think we've been in the real estate game long enough that we've seen the waves like We've been told by many investors, why are you guys spending time buying properties on the outskirts of the city where Toronto proper is the thing and you should be plowing all your money into Toronto? And I just find that to me, I tell, we tell everyone, buy for the long term. Like buy for the long term. If you are convinced you want a Toronto condo, buy a Toronto condo. If you're convinced you want a property on the outskirts, buy it for the outskirts. But to be chasing, it's almost like a wave, like a, a sw like a wave that just goes back and forth where like everybody runs to the outside of the city and then yeah. everybody runs back to the inside. It'll be fascinating to me two and three years from now if we look back at this moment as one of the opportunities to get into the Toronto market when you can get a deal or if this does change the trend a little bit, like you're saying, who knows? But I, th I have a feeling this might be one of those rare moments where you can kind of dive into it. I'm curious, and you might not have this at the tip of your fingers. Do you have any idea of the purchase rate right now? I should have looked this up before. The condo supply that's available or coming on the market and the current purchases. Do you have any of that data handy? And I know I'm yeah, throwing so, you a curveball so, here. So I don't have the, the numbers in front of me, but the amount... I think what you're getting at is the amount of sort of uh, inventory. Yeah, the absorption of that yeah. inventory. So, so, yeah. Yeah. Right. So we have about three or, you know, three to kind of five months of inventory, which is not 
too far outside of the 10 year rolling average, right? Like, so there's no buildup of inventory uh, that, that you're seeing um, because largely in the pre-construction market, for example, developers have just chosen not to launch projects, right? Like, so it's not like you're just continuing to layer on inventory as we go here. And construction projects have been somewhat delayed. So you're not seeing the same uh, volume of units come online, right? So even though sales absorption is low and the resale market, you know, isn't as robust as, as, as it was, I think if this continues for the next year, you're going to start seeing these ratios change. But right now we're not in a position where it's become all of a sudden a buyer's market yet. Um, to, to that, your- that, that, but that, that, that's interesting. Sorry to interrupt. That point is interesting because Canada has come out. We were talking about this the other day and said that immigration, they want to increase immigration over the next few years, even if the borders are continue to be closed, that Canada as a policy of this country, the Trudeau government wants to increase immigration. So that's interesting what you're saying, because if developers are now, we've already had housing shortages in this area. Like it's yep. been basically a crisis. And now if developers are holding back because of some uncertainty, but we're going to layer in more people over the next few years, For this sure. is an interesting dynamic to see how this kind of plays out because a big part, part of those people are going to come into the Toronto vicinity. For, for sure. Or, or Southern Ontario. So I, I want to I kind of tackle this in two ways, because I think there's two important concepts that you've touched on. One is this notion of people going either into the city and focusing or out or kind of wherever. The way we formulate our investment philosophy actually has nothing to do with that. We look at Southern Ontario and what I'll call the fundamentals. The fundamentals are supply demand, very basic. When people look at the green belt, for example, very few think about why the green belt exists. Some people who aren't real estate experts would probably tell you that it's an environmental driver as to why the green belt exists. The green belt is there to promote sustainable development. And what we mean by that is the fact that if you let developers urban sprawl forever, the cost of that infrastructure opposite the population base and the tax base is not sustainable, right? Who pays for the roads? Who pays for the hospitals? Who pays for the fire department? Who pays for the sewer systems, right? Like, so they try to intensify within these areas so they can fill it up with population because denser population is a more sustainable form over the long term as it relates to the cost of development. So having said all that, Southern Ontario has a very restricted development area for the most part. And it is the largest draw from an immigration perspective because of the employment base that exists here in Southern Ontario. That's one of the drivers. The other is how culturally diverse Southern Ontario already is. My parents immigrated. When they immigrated from the country they were from in the former Yugoslavia, they came because other people from their, their village, their province or whatever lived in the area they immigrated to. So logically that is part of the decision. So the people go where jobs are and people go where they feel comfortable. And Ontario has a lot to offer people as it relates to their immigration decisions. Now the country itself, when you think about immigration, I mean, Canada is a great place from a social, you know, an equality perspective. That's not the primary driver behind why we want high immigration. Our country only has 30 some odd million people in it relative to places like the United States that have 10 times the population that we do. For us to maintain our output in and be in the top seven countries in the world and the top five countries in the world from a GDP perspective, we need to generate more output. We need more people to generate that output. And if you look at statistics like household formation, organic household formation, 
people are getting married later, they're having less children per household. So the organic replacement rate isn't sufficient to sustain that over the long term. So the federal government has a policy, whether you're the liberal government or the conservative government, you're going to have the same outlook on immigration because it's an absolute necessity to keep Canada competitive economically on a global scale. So if you believe that, which is, is, is just a fact, you're going to have high levels of immigration for many years to come. And you have a relatively restrictive land use regime. You're going to have this supply demand imbalance. And when we formulate our thesis, it isn't about Toronto. It isn't about, you know, Hamilton or, or anything in between. It's about saying that of all the people that come to Southern Ontario, it's people of all shapes and sizes, people of all income levels, people of all, you know, different walks of life. Therefore, housing is a requirement for all of these types of people. So cities like Toronto might become very expensive and they can cater to a certain type of owner and obviously a big rental pool. Beyond that, people are going to live in other cities and towns in and around the GTA and the Greater Golden Horseshoe. So there's a housing type that suits every demographic when you have the fundamental supply demand imbalance that we're talking about. So to your investors and people who work with Rockstar, they have to think about it that way. They have to think about it as like anywhere right now in the GTA or the Greater Golden Horseshoe and in Southern Ontario in general, I feel great about buying something. The question you have to ask yourself is, are there any unique opportunities that are presenting themselves as a result of the pandemic, right? And I think there are on a situational basis. So what are you, uh, what are you hearing from developers? Because you guys are involved in a Yorkville project that's just launching right now. I think that's a six and a half year project, yep. right? So what are some of the conversations that that developer's having? Because they're obviously proceeding. Like, uh, is, it, is it just that it's a six? I know it's Yorkville first yeah. of all, and, and, and it's a six and a half year project. So is that what's giving that developer, you know, location and then yeah. just the time there? So let's proceed COVID or no COVID doesn't really matter to us, not affecting us. For, for sure. I mean, like, I think this is a little, what, can you, what is that project? Can you describe that project just a little bit? Yeah. So we're, we're, we're buying together with tribute communities, which is one of our kind of longtime partners. I think this is our 12th uh, project together. Uh, we're buying the north uh, west corner of Avenue Road and Davenport, which is kind of right on the northern boundary of Yorkville. You can walk to, you know, the nicest shops in the city. You can walk to the subway, you know, very accessible. Uh, also a neighborhoody feel. So it, for those of you that uh, are listening that haven't been to Yorkville, you know, it's, it's kind of Canada's, you know, golden mile as it relates to retail and sort of uh, that, that type of thing. Um, and residentially, the further north you get, the more of a neighborhood it feels like. So, so what's unique about it is that you have this, you know, proximity to probably the most expensive, you know, commercial retail real estate in the country. Um, and that is sort of that glamorous area of Toronto. Yet at the same time, you have parks right, right outside your front door. You have a, a neighborhood type feel where you have a lot of low rise housing in the vicinity. So we really uh, are excited about the project. Your, your question, Tom, was around you know, what are developers thinking? So first and foremost, I think in our context, we have the benefit of working with 20 different large scale developers. So we get to see inside the heads of many of the most prominent largest developers in the city. And then of course, having worked with these guys for 16 years and built out our own capability, there's multiple filters of, do we decide to do something, right? So if a developer decides it's a good idea, 
that may or may not coincide with what we think is a good idea. So as we look at our opportunity independently of our partners, on this one, we both lined up. And, and the, the things that really drove that decision were what I'll call the micro factors, right? The actual corner it's on, what neighborhood it's in, purchase price, like all of the various things that made it attractive for that specific deal. But I think to take it up a level as it relates to our macroeconomic thesis on the, on, on the matter, when you're buying something new, a piece of land, and you're going through a development process, in some cases, people look at time as a drawback, right? In something like this, where you know the next 12 months are likely to be more cloudy than the next 24 months, and that's likely to be a little more cloudy in the next 36 months, we look at this as an opportunity to secure a good piece of real estate in the right part of the city that has all of the right attributes, and we have a couple years to take it through a planning process, right? Make sure that we get all of our ducks in a row from an approvals perspective and a, and a permitting perspective, and then open a sales center. You know, at the end of two years, we have about a, we budget about a year or so to get to our pre-construction th thresholds. We're already three years post-pandemic or, or post today. I'm not going to say post-pandemic, but post today. So it's almost you're doing yourself a disservice if you focus on what's happening this very second and make these types of investment decisions. You have to look at, again, we've talked a lot about it, but the, the overall fundamentals, and you have to make a judgment call on whether you think that the current pandemic has caused a structural change in the way that cities will, will, will work from now on, or if you believe that it's a temporary dislocation. Here, we believe it's a temporary dislocation. And further to that, with the way Canada has handled this pandemic with the way that Toronto, I think generally handles things, whether it's, you know, you look at the US and I, I don't wanna make direct comparisons, but when you look at some of the social movements and social unrest that's happened in the US, the same issues might exist here. We're just handling them differently. And I think that people see that on a global scale and they look at a place like Canada and they see it to be a lot more cohesive. They see it to be a lot more uh, accepting, and they see a land of opportunity. I think that coming out of this pandemic, I expect to see not only a federal mandate to increase immigration, I see the rest of the world responding and looking at Toronto, whereas before they were looking at Toronto, they were looking at New York, they were looking at Chicago, they were looking at you know six other North, North American cities. And I think that Toronto may be emerging as a clear cut you know, winner as it relates to where I would wanna live if I was from a different place in the world. So candidly, I think that we are set to see even more strength over time in places like Toronto and the peripheral area. So that's kind of what drew us to this particular opportunity. And we're, we're yeah, you said so much good stuff there. We have been pounding the drum of Toronto for, I feel like 10 years. I've been telling people Toronto when you, I guess, because my, my family also came from out of the country and I'm like, you don't understand how Toronto is viewed. And if you look at what's happening in North America, to your point about different, how Toronto's handle handling things and how Canada handles things compared to the U S Toronto is just with our healthcare system, our education, the, the, the schools that you're going to send your kids to, here, the different safe communities, and I, I mean, relatively very safe, I would say, Toronto is just almost a no brainer. And I think sometimes when you're from here, and we share that with people, they don't get it. I'm like, yeah. no, you have no idea. Where else in North America are you going to go? Nick and I pulled the population growth data for the for the greater Toronto area. 
And over the last 10 years, we could find maybe Dallas, Fort Worth, and the state of California were the two areas that were growing faster than the GTA. And then the GTA, I think it was last year, kind of surpassed both of them and just became number one outright. So the amount of people coming in here and then per capita and per capita just influences this city, drives prices with low interest rates. It kind of makes all this demand and we can argue whether it's right or wrong. But the reason the government thinks it's right, back to your point, is that this country, we're not the best innovative country, unfortunately. So we jam people in here to make up for that, to keep our economy burning strong. Right. We're not going to be like the Silicon Valley. So what we do is we just get people, stick them in here, and that creates an economic factor that we need to grow this economy. And then the other thing that you said was so valuable was long-term perspective. Like the developers have that long-term perspective. It's interesting in my life, you know, now reflecting back on different things, every good thing I've ever done in my life has had a long-term perspective to it. Anytime I'm trying to make, I had buddies who were going to make me millionaires with some mining stocks in the early 2000s. (laughs) <laughs> and you know, you I, and I might have had the same friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I put them in, I don't know, trading at 20 cents, but it was going to be, you know, $3 overnight. Yeah. And it went from 20 cents to three cents. And lo- anytime I've done anything for the quick and easy, fast money, it's failed. Anytime in my life, relationships, finances, business building, real estate, I've taken the long term approach. You know, to me, I've just determined long-term having a low time preference to money and and long-term thinking is the key to pretty much everything. That might be summing it up too simply, but I just, when I hear you say that, I'm like, yeah, of course, long-term thinking wins every time. I think it's, I don't think it's oversimplifying. I think, you know, I used to play hockey and, and, and one of the philosophies, one of my coaches, uh, always drummed into my head was the kiss principle. And, And the kiss principle was keep it simple, stupid. Uh, and, and it was the best way to win hockey games because it meant getting back to basics and it meant, you know, not being too flashy and just getting the puck in and out and that kind of thing. Why that's relevant to what you and I are talking about here is, you know, I don't think you're oversimplifying at all. Like if you think about anything in investment, think about the financial crisis, right? So think about what happened in the U S 07, the market's on fire, the housing market, just broadly speaking, 08, the world ends dead. Yeah. Okay. By 2013, the case Schiller, which tracks aggregate U S housing prices across the country was higher than it was in 07. Okay. So you're talking about a, a period of six years where the most widely, you know, you know, the, the, the largest financial meltdown since the depression at the time, uh, specifically focused in on housing in the United States, and it took six years to recover, okay? So this, all of this to say that there's no cycle that I have seen and lived through myself or studied in North America in sort of what I'll call Western democracies, okay? Where, where you've seen the cycle last a decade, right? So the longer your time horizon, the more ability you have to withstand these troughs right? You, you might miss some peaks, but generally speaking, I have this slide and obviously I don't have it now, but I have a slide that kind of shows the, the GTA housing market from 2000 to 2020. And if you look at any individual time, you see peaks and troughs, like little, you know, it almost looks like an EK, EKG that somebody's done, right? You see these little spikes and these little drops. But if you look at that trend line over 20 years, there's no question that trend line is, is up and across, right? So what that tells you is that you, if you have enough 
time to be able to smooth out that volatility, you're going to generally be much better off. And, you know, I think for, so I, I think that the concept that you're talking about is a, is a very important concept for people because as investors, the biggest mistake I think people make is being overreactive. Okay. And we've seen this time and time again. Like if you look at equity markets, which are the best indicator of human psychology. Okay. Why? If particularly the mutual fund industry. So when I want to get an indication of human psychology, I look at the mutual fund industry because it's the, you know, not everybody can buy a home or an apartment. It takes a, a lot of capital, but it's easy to put 500 bucks in a mutual fund. So the vast majority of the world participates in mutual funds. If you look at when markets are at a peak, an absolute historical peak, it is the largest inflows into mutual funds. When you look at the troughs, right? So 08, 09, the tech bubble, 2001, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, is the most outflows. That is the, when you think about that, that's the most ridiculous thing in the world. So when the markets are at their all time lowest, that's when the most money's exiting these vehicles. And when the markets are at their all time highs, that's when everybody's entering these vehicles. That's a complete counterintuitive thing to investing. So what that is, is just simple human emotional reaction, right? Something happens in the world. It scares the crap out of you. You open the newspaper, you see the TV, you see what's happening and you panic. And you run. Yeah, and yeah. you run, yeah. right? And, and I think it takes a lot of discipline to try and sit back and say, okay, I get it. It's, it's crazy out there right now, but I got to take a step back and I got to remind myself of why I made this investment in the first place, right? And when I've reminded myself of that, then you ask yourself, what's really changed? And has it permanently changed? Or are we probably dealing with something that might be a temporary change? Mm -hmm. And that's the decision tree that we have to all kind of go through. And that's, you know, again, oversimplifying a little bit, but that's how we have to look at things from a Graybrook perspective as a firm uh, when we make our investments. And, and the U.S., you know, we compared Canada and the U.S., we have a very uh, uh, a large U.S. investment portfolio as well. And notwithstanding the differences between the two countries, uh, sometimes people forget that the United States is as many challenges as they can have at, at various periods of time, still relative to the rest of the world, represents a lot of prosperity, right, in terms of asset growth, in terms of you know, overall sort of wealth creation. So I wanted to ask you, okay, I'm glad you brought up the US because I wanted to ask you what you guys, because I know you guys do quite a bit or, or, or a little bit at least. I feel like it's quite a bit in Florida. Yeah, it's a lot. yeah. yeah. and um, I just wanted to get your perspective now on that. What what are the some of the trends you're seeing in Florida? We talked a little bit about it. So if you could share just some, because that's pretty fascinating, just some of the, the types of real estate that you're seeing do really well, because it's a little surprising to me, quite honest, honestly. Sure. Um so that, that's interesting. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the vast majority of our portfolio is in rental apartments, right? So we build newly developed class A rental buildings. Um, and, and your rental buildings, because we don't have any pictures, 
When you yeah. say class A, you really like just to paint a picture of this, it's like a five-star hotel. When yeah, I'm when it's it's not like a rental building, like the ones I thought of growing up as a rental apartment building. These yeah. are more like five-star hotel rental properties, which shocked me that you guys yeah, are doing that. Like how, you know, rooftop pools and different uh, workspace areas, amazing yeah. gyms, yeah. the whole bit. And the reason I'm sharing that, just to paint that picture, this isn't like your typical apartment building you guys are building. No, and and you know, for for your listeners you know, at, at some point, if they get in touch with you, we can show them some, some of this stuff. We have, you know, a lot of active social media and all that kind of thing to be able to actually, because it's very visual, as you point out. I mean, these buildings are outstanding. And, and the thesis, it, that's not by accident. Okay, so our investment thesis in the US has been as follows. Cities are expensive, just, you know, what's happening in Toronto is not unique to Toronto. It's unique. It's, it's not unique to most major North American cities where you've seen the price of real estate as an ownership exceed the pace of income growth. So what happens is people get priced out of ownership, they have to rent, right? And, and the rental market becomes their access point to housing. Uh, in addition to that, with kind of the younger cohort of, 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 of individuals, you know, I think that it's a false narrative that people say they place higher value on their life experiences than the new ownership of real estate. I, I don't think that's necessarily accurate. However, I do think that they, you know, it's not a trade-off. I think that they do place a lot greater uh, an emphasis on the life experiences they have, right? So if you think about the typical typical demographic that rents, it's that kind of sub 40 uh, demographic, generally speaking. I mean, it's everybody of all shapes and sizes and ages, but, but the largest group, the largest growth group is that kind of 23 kind of postgraduate to 40 group. And when you think about what they care about, it's all, it's not what I cared about. Like when I graduated from school, I needed a car because that was the first thing. It's like, I got to buy a car. Right. So I bought my Honda Civic and I I had my, my car. And then it was like, I got to get a place. And the measure of what was an awesome place was it's big. (laughs) I got a, I got an 1100 square foot place. Tom's is like 900 square feet. Like, mm, right. That was like maybe you and I nowadays, I don't think people care as much about what size of apartment they're in, what they care about is why is my apartment not a neighborhood? Why is it the sterile thing where I might know one or two of my neighbors? And if I live in a community of of houses, I have a neighborhood and I know my neighbors and I go to the local Starbucks and I feel like a neighborhood type thing. Why can't that be done in an apartment? So what we did was we kind of took the traditional concept of apartment living and attach the social component to it. So we call it social living. It's taking the space and rather than maximizing the density to the nines of leasable square footage, right? Spending it all on units. We decided to chop off a percentage of the building and turn it into world-class amenities. And the, and the gamble at the beginning was, you know, developers normally think I got to maximize my leasable area because that's how I make my money. Okay. But what if you took less leasable area but could drive higher rent because your building was so awesome that people wanted to live there over the boring building that you described? And that was kind of the genesis of this social living concept. And, and what we did was we took these buildings and we turned them into neighborhoods by having a lot of engagement within the actual building. So building the right amenities, right? The pool decks, the restaurant, the co-working spaces. The gym is not like a typical crappy condo gym. It's like an Equinox uh, hiring people to like be trainers and 
having virtual trainers and spin studios and all that kind of thing. And the bet was that, yeah, we have less leasable space, but at the same time, I think that people will pay more to be in this building than they will to be in the one next door that's kind of boring. And the value proposition to the tenant was you might be paying more, right? However, think about this. You don't need a gym membership. You don't need to pay the co-working thing because a lot of, you know, nowadays people work from home. They do all this kind of thing. You have the facilities in your building. It's all included in your rent. All of your social engagement, we have whiskey tastings, we have, you know, uh, uh, movie theaters, all this type of thing. It's included in the rent. So as an all-in cost of living in the city, you're actually cheaper because all of this other stuff you get at your doorstep rather than having to pay for it somewhere else. And your all-in cost is actually less. And that became very successful. So the first one we did in Miami called X Miami it was in its submarket, the fastest to lease up, and we drove about a twenty percent rent premium over anything else in the area. What, what year was that one? That when was com- that? It completed in two thousand and eighteen. Okay. So, so now it's stabilized and 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 uh, you know it's it's there and it's fully leased. Uh, since then, we bought several other properties, not only in Miami but Fort Lauderdale, and now we're expanding. Uh, we have one upcoming in Denver. Um, so it, it's all about being in cities that exhibit the characteristics that we're looking for, right? Kind of not unlike Toronto, where young demographic, good employment, uh, net migration or immigration into the city. Um, you know, you think about places like New York, they for many years have had a net migration out. Like New York is is, is getting smaller. Totally. So um, Chicago. Yeah, so no, Chicago, I'm shocked. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. and you get the, we look for these cities that still exhibit these growth characteristics. And then, and then we where's look at the, 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 I don't even know how to say it properly. The loss. Lo, oh, Las Olas. Where's La, that one? Las Olas is in Fort Lauderdale. Okay. That's um, Fort Lauderdale. So it's on the riverfront of Fort Lauderdale. I just want to give the URL because I know some people are going to listen to this driving and can't go there. But if you go to societyliving.com, you'll see the different communities. And, and the reason I'm saying this, because you have to see the pictures of the properties. Like at first I thought you guys were building hotels when I yeah. saw this stuff. So societyliving.com, if you're listening to this and you want to see pictures of what is being done, that's where to go. But sorry, and, and, Sasha, go ahead. And the additional element we've since introduced, right? So it started off with a social living component, as I just explained. And then we started to also think about adding a co-living component. Okay. So co-living being, you know, people living with roommates, which is a reality that happens anyway in expensive cities where people they get a two bedroom and they get a roommate and they split the rent. Like that's something that's existed forever. And what we've done is effectively turn it into a turnkey tech enabled seamless experience. So each um, room, each, like each room then has four, like two or three different bedrooms. Yeah. But then there's all of them. So so it'll be a building, right? Okay. Got it. Got it. 25% of the building. The rest of the building is all uh, traditional sort of mix. Okay. Got it. But but 25 or 30% of the building we may do is co-living. And and what you were describing is exactly how that works, which is you have a a suite. It might be a three bedroom suite and each bedroom is its own apartment, right? You have your own lock and key, which isn't a lock and key these days. It's an app enabled type thing, but it's your own lock and key. You have your own ensuite bathroom. You have your, your own closet space. And then you have shared living space as it relates to kind of the kitchen. Okay. And, and then I get to pick, do I know who my kind of quote unquote roommate is? A, a bit of both, right? So in, in some cases, people can show up together, right? You and I can go together and say, we want to take a two bedroom and we want to sign the lease, Tom and Sasha. 
And Tom signs a lease with the building and Sasha signs a lease with the building. So why that's important is if Tom gets transferred for work or he leaves or Got it. Yeah. Happens, yeah, yeah. I'm not left in the lurch. Like I, I effectively just keep paying my same payment, my same share of the utilities, like nothing changes in my life. And now I can bring in somebody else, but the building also has that ability. So we've created a technology capability. I, I, I joke around, I call it kind of like match.com for roommates where essentially it's a, it's an algorithm that basically matches people of like, um, you know, like sort of interests and, and, and that kind of thing. And really it's designed for people who, you know, there's a lot of people who live in cities where they move from, uh, you know, they graduate school, they move there because of work or whatever the case, they don't know a lot of people. This is a great way to help enable that experience where you're not out there looking for a roommate. You're not putting an ad in the newspaper. Um, we, the, the building can effectively facilitate that for you. And if people aren't compatible, there's ways we deal with that. You get two, I think, you know, two, I think it's two free moves where you, you can move if you're not compatible <laughs> with your roommate. Yeah. You know, it's when funny. You, when you it, hate the person that's next to you. Yeah, I get well, it. And that's going to naturally happen. It, it's going to happen. I mean, like we, we've, we've started to confront these types of things head on and we have fun with it. So part of what we're catering to with this building is like, well, actually the policy, if you read the policy, instead of being some like joke of a legal thing, it literally says like, you know, two free moves by the third, it's you, not the, not the roommate, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. We, like we actually, you know, people laugh. And, got, like, and so these things are working because these are rental property. The whole thing is a rental, even the regular units are rental. So these things are working right. because you're, you're getting higher rent, even on the regular units because of the amenities. But now yeah. on 25% of it, you're even getting more rent because you're, you're kind of That's dividing right. it up. People yeah. like it because they don't have to make a larger monthly commitment. They get That's in right. for a smaller amount into a beautiful building. Maybe they graduate to their own unit later, exactly. but the person who owns it is now maximizing every, you know, there's probably little vacancy. It sounds like so far in these things and they have a great rental property and yeah. this is maybe then sold off to like some yeah, so pension we, we, funds and stuff by these things. That's what we do or we, or we keep them. Right. So those are the two. Okay. Sure. Cause it's generating cash flow and income is, is king flow. and you're going to keep it. Yeah. You have the ultimate amount of optionality, right? Like you can sit there at the end of it. Like for example, X Miami, the one I described, uh, which was kind of before we launched the society brand. So it was, it, we, we first launched a brand called X and it was going to be X Miami, X Fort Lauderdale, X Denver. Uh, and we changed it to society. We just, you know, our branding people thought it was a lot better, but this one, we didn't change the name of the building. It's, it's still called X Miami. Um, we have optionality. Like we, we were going to sell it uh, in January. We kind of started a process with a, with a broker to run a, a process and, and sell it. And then the pandemic hit and we just said, okay, no problem. We'll just, we'll just sit there and collect our checks. Um, a question I've been getting a lot, especially through the pandemic is, okay, well, how have collections been? That's question number one. Mm -hmm. As it relates to the new stuff, like Los Olas, the one in Fort Lauderdale that you uh, mentioned, we started leasing in March. That's literally when lockdown yeah. started to happen. Okay. So the next question I always get is, well, how has leasing been in, in especially co-living? Because people, they think, whoa, like pandemic, co-living. Um, I'll tell you that collections have been you know in the in the 90s from a percent like we're leased up i think 92 or 93 percent collections have been all consistent throughout x miami since the pandemic started so no issues with rent no issues with vacancy and in los olas that we started leasing we saw greater lease velocity and higher per square foot rents than we projected um and it surprised a lot of people but what i what i'll tell you is that 
the co-living component, these people are living with roommates no matter what. It's not an option because they're price constrained, right? So they're coming, they, they're living in the city because their job is there or their friends are there or their family's there or whatever, or they're making a choice because again, suburbs are great, but so are cities. They have a lot to offer people, right? So when people are making the choice, it's primarily based on price points, right? Because whether they're living here or in the boring building across the street, they're getting a roommate. Now all you're doing here is you're making it a lot easier because what we do in our buildings, not only is it the lease, you and I would be roommates, but we're all on our independent leases. But on top of that, the apartment's professionally cleaned once a week, right? If you think about what most of the friction is with people's roommates, if you have a compatible personality profile between them, it's that like, you know what, Tom's a slob. Every time I come home, his stuff's in the sink. He doesn't do jack squat. Totally. That's the reminds us of our student rentals. It reminds me of like our student rentals. That's how the student rentals are That's for sure. Friction, yeah. Yeah. Right? Totally. So how do you eliminate the friction? You, you know, you have these co-living suites professionally cleaned once a week, right? Like they're, nobody has to do a thing like, like a hotel, right? Like they come in, they clean. Um, and it's part of the, part of the rent. Uh, the whole so thing even is through, so that you guys, that, that means you guys were renting from March and April. If you're doing that much, you're doing 10 units a week. Like you're doing lots of units a week. Yeah, we have, a, we have a, I have to, I'd have to double check the exact numbers. I think the, the building, the first phase of this in Los Olas, which is now completed, we're, we're leasing the first phase. I think we're somewhere around 250 or 300 units in aggregate. And we're about 50% leased to this point in time which is pretty consistent with the pace that we expected, uh, you know, in our pro forma. Like, so, you know, I don't know if you do the math, we had a couple purely locked down weeks within that, but like generally speaking, when people became mobile again, leasing resumed. Um, the fact of the matter is people still need a place to live. Like I, I think I've always felt, you know, Graybrook stayed pretty tight to the residential area as it relates to investment. And a question I get a lot is like, well, why don't you do commercial? Why don't you do retail? We do a little bit of it, but why we've stuck so heavily to the residential side is we've just felt that like hell or high water, people need to room. It's why we've stayed residential. It's exactly what people for years have told us. We joke because we just bought this commercial space that we're in and we just laugh. Like, of course, we bought it the month before the biggest economic disaster is going to hit us. We buy commercial for, for Rockstar, but we've stayed residential with our investing and with investors because we've always, we lived through 1990 in Toronto when the market collapsed. But the sure. thing is the starter home, there, there's a segment of the market that never really quite collapses because ultimately, even when you have shelter in place during COVID, that shelter is a need. Yeah, so, yeah for sure. I think it's, a, do you think then, is this something Graybrook's going to continue on in the US? Like, are you doing other things in the US or is this going to be your specialty in the US? This is the primary focus. Like, I mean, you know, for good or for bad, we've, we've sort of built our business being somewhat opportunistic at times. So I, I never say never, right? When, when things come up that make sense, markets change, you know, you, you have to reserve the, the right to have your thesis change with it. Um, but right now, you know, given the way we perceive the next decade to be maybe, maybe longer in terms of wage growth versus, you know, housing price growth, city formation, you know, again, notwithstanding the pandemic, I feel similarly a lot about these u.s cities the way i do about toronto as it relates to ultimately returning to to urban urban context um based on that you know we feel really great about this type of rental platform and i i think what's what's good about it is that 
because it's so different than the typical stuff that's out there. I mean, I'm not naive to believe that we're going to be the only ones doing this. Like I think right now we're the largest, us and our partner PMG are the largest in the US as it relates to uh, social living, co-living kind of properties. No doubt people are going to start doing it and being competitive. Um, but frankly, I think the market keeps increasing in size. And I think that we have a portfolio of properties that we kind of, you know, a good pipeline of, of, of what I'll call like grade A sites in cities. Like the next one that we're going to bring to our investors is in Denver. Um, you know, it's right in downtown Denver, kind of, you know, pr prime time kind of site. Um, and, and, you know, Denver has a lot of the attributes that we look for as a city. But I think that this is where the focus will be. But again, you know, we, we're good business. We like to think we're good business people. But the idea is that part of being a good business person, at least in our philosophy, is to remain flexible and agile to, to take advantage of opportunities. So I'm never going to say this is the only thing. But right now, I'd say it's kind of our core thing. Sasha, you're from Hamilton. You're a hustler in the best, I mean that in the best possible way, man. You're hustling. You're hustling. That's exactly right. But, and, uh, and you know, it's, it's funny. Every time I go back to the hammer, I, I, you know, if my business partners are with me, they, people that aren't from Hamilton don't have the same admiration, right? So let's just say that. But when they come, they're like, what? Like, you, you talk about the place all the time. And I'm like, because it's like, you it's, know, it's heaven on earth to me. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because when I grew up in Mississauga, you were just trained to kind of like Hamilton was like, you went to Toronto. Like if you grew up and I grew up on the border of Etobicoke and Mississauga. Yeah. So you always went downtown Toronto. And then the people that I knew who were going to Hamilton, they're like, well, why would you ever go to like Hamilton? I think we got to Burlington. There was like a club there called Energy or something. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. Okay. There many times. Okay. Okay. I think, uh, I think I spent enough at the bar there that I ended up getting the backdoor VIP access, which just meant if I, just take, if I had just taken all that money and bought condos or bought some real estate <laughs> at that time, I'm sure you make the same jokes, but Nick but and you would have had, you would have had less fun. Yeah, no, no. It was a good time. It was a good time. But uh, anyway, so it's cool to see the development of Greybrook. And I just think that Denver is interesting because Denver seems to me, a lot of my U.S. friends love Denver. I've never been. And so there's some dynamic that you're playing with there that's working to your advantage for sure. And Florida is interesting because I think when the U.S., you're just going to get a lot of demographic advantages there as people just want to move down into Florida. You're also going to get when the U.S. is kind of locked down in a situation like this and they can't really leave the country or no places like Europe doesn't even want them. By the way, I think Europe isn't even interested in Canadians anymore. Uh -huh. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. But, but when they don't want the Americans, they're going to go somewhere. So you get this dynamic in Florida. That's really interesting because and, people and need to, and yeah, and the, sorry, no state, no state income tax. and no state tax. All you layer that in plus that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of strangely, you have like multiple factors playing to your advantage there. That's going to be interesting to see with what, what you guys do over the next few years there. So I was going to, I just want to repeat the URLs because I, I want to honor your time here. So it's societyliving.com if you want to check out the stuff in the US and the email address to use for Sasha. I know you have a couple of guys in your team that always do a great job um, working with any inquiries that are coming in is rockstar at graybrook.com. So it's rockstar at graybrook.com for any questions about anything that you guys are doing, whether it's Yorkville projects or Toronto projects or Absolutely. in the US, those guys will handle it. Yeah, like we 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 have a great team, and and we've worked together now for for a long time. So uh, we're always uh, looking to keep people abreast of what we're doing. And you know, uh, I I just feel I'm I'm very energized by the business of real estate going forward. Like I, you know, a lot of people can look at real estate, especially during a pandemic, and and sort of see 
challenges and and you got to kind of at least from my vantage point and i think tom you share it like you, you kind of look at a challenge but that's a glass half empty view every challenge there's an opportunity and i think as we look at the market and and its evolution again if you believe in the long-term fundamentals if you don't and i say this to my investors i'm like if you're not on our page as it relates to what will happen eventually with people returning to urban context and the strength of southern ontario then you shouldn't put your money here like this Plainly, our philosophy is one that is is very bullish on what will happen. Like I, I, I can tell you even the office narrative that, you know, nobody's going to come back to offices and kind of, you know, that kind of thing. I know a lot of businesses, my own included, where when we first started to come back, it changed people's perspective. And, and what I mean by that is when, it, when 100% of the world was on Zoom, it was easy because everybody was on Zoom, right? And you and I would have this conversation if we had eight other people, we're all on level playing field. Where things began to change was when in-person things started to happen again. And now you have four people in a room and two people on the phone or on Zoom. Those two people just didn't feel the same connection. They didn't feel like they were getting the same benefit. Um, and, and we had a lot of people that just wanted to come back. And, and you know, we've honored kind of the city's um, the city's wishes as it relates to, you know, not, you know, we have a, we have three floors here in our office building and, and we occupy 30% of the building and the rest of the building is relatively closed. So for us, it's like, you know, we don't have any elevator issues. We, you know, so we've been kind of back, but all of this to say that I, I believe that office environments might change in the sense of more flexibility maybe less, uh, less focus on everybody having a private office and more kind of sharing workspaces eventually, but it's not going away. Right. And that, and that's the thing that I think people are you're just missing. Missing. You're bringing up such a good point because I just see in my own neighborhood here in Oakville that people who work downtown, you know, back in April, everybody was like convinced they would never go back down there. They decided that working from home was the best and right. they were going to do that forever. Now in October, 2020, I'm starting to hear, uh, you know what? I wouldn't mind getting to the office a little bit. I wouldn't mind getting a little space. I wouldn't mind. And Nick and I from day, so we've changed our office. So we're in Oakville ground floor. Everyone can just walk in, but our internal team. So most of our teams on the road, you know, looking at properties and the whole bit, but the internal team, we've gone to one work from home day kind of permanently. Um, and the rest of the days are here because we've, we decided early on that it's going to be a competitive advantage to our business to be in person. That, yeah. that the, the businesses that are not in person, to your point about Zoom, Nick and I thought, you know what, this Zoom thing, I know it's the trend right now. I know a lot of big tech companies are talking about different things, but I'm like, you know, there's a competitive advantage to the knowledge share that happens informally around the espresso machine or in the training room. It's just going to be a competitive advantage. And I think over time, some business leaders are going to change the narrative of people are going to work home forever and say, hey, you know what? We're, we're bringing it back in and almost from a self, just a business survival mechanism, they're going to realize the amount of knowledge sharing. So, and it's not discussed a lot, but we see it. So to hear you talk about zoom in that capacity, we see it exactly the same. For, for sure. And, and you know what, it's not only the business leaders. I found that a lot yeah, of that's a good drivers, point. Yeah. Yeah. From, from our vantage point, a lot of the drivers were from the people themselves. So, totally. Who, yeah. Who, you know, think about a young person, you graduate school, part of the experience, like let's say you're getting into private equity investment banking, like the stuff we do. Part of the experience is obviously the work and what you'll learn through mentorship and what you'll learn through collaboration with your colleagues and bouncing ideas off one another. 
part of it too is the network that you're going to develop. And, and, and that is kind of what carries you through your career. You're just not going to get that you know, sitting in your living room on a, on a TV screen is just not going to happen. No, when I was back at Oracle, I learned so much listening to the more senior guys on telephone calls, you know? So now it might be seeing how somebody writes an email or, 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 you know, uh, vents about a problem and how they handle that problem. Just listening to that, being next to that is such a huge kind of, it just, it accelerates your own personal growth so much faster. You don't get that through Zoom. And I'm not, I'm not saying Zoom, of course, Zoom's probably going to take a bigger role for all of us and there will be more sure. remote stuff. I'm not saying that, but yeah, there's, it's not all one way or the other way. Yeah. So, like I think where Zoom plays a massive role, even in my day to day and our day to day um, is you know, the, la the last thing I'll mention on the why people will come back to offices is here, you know, if I'm here and Peter, my partner's here and something comes up, a deal comes in, you know, we got to look at it quick. Like you just walk out of the office and be like, hey, Jared, my head of asset management, I need you. And totally. Yeah. If you're not there, you're going to miss <laughs> out on those things. Like, because it's just human nature, right? Like you're going to, you're going to sort of do what's convenient as opposed to like, Oh, okay, well uh, let's get Tom on the phone and let's explain this. You know, it's, it's just not the same, but um, all of this to say that where zoom plays a big role and will continue to play a big role is, is sort of certain types of meetings you don't have to have in person. And frankly, this is way better than the phone. So where it has an amazing ongoing role is it's not going to eliminate offices, but instead of taking a meeting, you know, that might take, 20 minutes of commute time and in the meeting and 20 minutes more of commute time. If you can maintain that connection over zoom, because we can see one another, we can chat, we can, I think it's a, it's got a great place. And I think technology will always have a great place in, in, in sort of the, the, the professional environment. And, you know, you, there are certain jobs like some of these tech companies uh, you know, the jobs can easily be done be, because people are coding or programming or whatever it is they're doing. But I still think that you, you said it well, which is the people that you know and your friends that kind of started off thinking this was great and then eventually wanted to go back to the office. We, we consistently underestimate human nature in everything. And I think human, if human beings were such that they didn't want to be social and they didn't want to be community-oriented or collaborative, that would be sad. And, and, and the good news is we're not. And, I thought you were going to say, well, people, we'd all be living in the forest. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. eventually people are going to be yeah, sitting and looking yeah. at the screen being like, man, like I've got to get back. I want to see people. I want to be able to, you know, deal with that. And especially if the thing, the acute threat is no longer acute, right? If it's manageable, then I think people feel much more comfortable. Sasha, I want to honor your time. You shared a ton of information. Thank you so much. So it's societyliving.com to check out any of the Florida stuff. If you want to reach out directly to Graybrook about anything, any of their, their stuff that they have going on and you have questions about the investments or jumping in and what they're doing, it's rockstar at graybrook.com um, to learn more about the, the current stuff, I guess, is the Yorkville project and some of the stuff that you have going on in Florida and soon to be in Denver. Right. Sasha, thank you so much. Thanks Appreciate it. Me, next Appreciate time I'm making you an espresso here in Oakville. Done That's deal. what we're doing next time. Done deal. Cool. Thanks, man. Okay, Appreciate thanks, it. Tom. Okay.
Hey everyone, so hopefully you enjoyed that. If you want to reach out to Greybrook for any information about anything, you can use the email address rockstar at greybrook.com. That goes directly to them. It's a couple of guys on their team have been handling that email. It's They've been a fantastic group overall. That's rockstar at greybrook.com. And if you are listening to this and you want more real estate information from us and how to work with us directly in the real estate market here in the GTA and Golden Horseshoe, you can find out all sorts of information on what we're up to at www.rockstarinnercircle.com. That's www.rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it for now. Until next time, your life, your terms.